A knowledge base assembles information from a wide variety of sources into a central platform. The most popular knowledge base is Wikipedia, which covers a wide variety of concepts through a system that attempts to remain authoritative and impartial. Other open knowledge platforms include Stack Overflow, which focuses on programming concepts, and Quora, which adds a social element to the process of information accumulation. Golden.com is a knowledge base that indexes, categorizes, and surfaces information. Golden has information about software and genetics and world history and social media and sports and all kinds of other subjects. The company monetizes with a paid knowledge base product for enterprises, which allows for easy querying of the open knowledge base and a private knowledge base for internal information. Jude Gomilla is the founder of Golden, and he joins the show to discuss the process of building a universal knowledge base and the engineering problems that he's working on to improve Golden. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. We recently launched GitHub integrations. It's easier than ever to find collaborators for your open source projects. And if you're looking for someone to start a company with or start a project, Find Collabs has topic rooms that allow you to find other people who are interested in a particular technology so that you can find people who are curious about React or cryptocurrencies or Kubernetes or whatever you want to build with. Also, if you're looking to start a podcast, Podsheets is an open source podcast hosting platform that we recently launched. We're building Podsheets with the learnings from Software Engineering Daily, and our goal is to be the best place to host and monetize your podcast. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, check out Podsheets.com. Jude Gomilla, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. How's it going? How are you today? It's going great. How are you? Really good, actually. We just launched uh, the pay products for Golden and just looking at all the kind of responses on Twitter and looking forward to the weekends a little bit. Indeed. Well, to explain what Golden is, I'd like to start by discussing the category of knowledge base with you. There's a type of platform on the internet that is often called a knowledge base, and the most widely known example is Wikipedia. What do internet users want out of a knowledge base? Yeah, I think there's a very wide range of use cases. Some users are looking for PhD-level explanations of pretty technical subjects, like the Riemann hypothesis or, you know, anti-decitta black hole space time. And some users are looking for a quick explanation of, of what something is. It may just be, maybe they want to look up a particular location in Nigeria, or they want to quickly find out about a person and understand what this person does. So I think there's a lens of ranges of applications from someone looking at something very quickly to someone doing very deep knowledge research, where they're trying to find connections to academic papers and further reading and so that, that's an interesting dimension. And then the other dimension is the different types of things that people want to find. Some people want to find information about academic topics, concepts, technologies, concepts in philosophy. Some want to find information about a company or a person in business or a person in science or a location or a historical event or a current event. So the number of types of things as well is really quite rich. What are the shortcomings of Wikipedia? 
Yeah, so Wikipedia is an interesting one. One of the best things that has ever been built by humans. It is currently around 18 years old. And that in, in the technology space and the software space is actually a very long time. So if we look back at the, the genesis of Wikipedia and some of the choices that were probably the correct choices made at the time, you know, if we look back at the encyclopedia itself, you know, it had limited shelf space on which you could you could load up your, your encyclopedia in your house. And then we moved over to like a CD with Carter and then multiple CDs and then a DVD and then multiple DVDs. And then we jumped over to the web, semi in parallel. And then we had limited storage. We had limited storage. We had limited processing capabilities. We had a lack of functional plug and play AI systems that were, weren't productized. Communities were very early. Real identity was missing. You know, it's pre Facebook, it's pre Twitter, it's pre GitHub, it's pre YouTube. So when we looked at back, you know, we're looking at a system that was designed before many interesting components had been figured out on the web and in technology in general. So one of the main ones that that led to is, is notability. So Wikipedia has famously got a notability requirement for a topic being loaded up to it. And in our mind, this has been, it's a fairly arbitrary threshold. So something that is notable to one group of people is different from what is notable to another group of people. You know, CRISPR-Cas12e might be notable to a bunch of biology researchers, but may not be that notable to sports fans. And this leads to inconsistencies in policies of how to enforce what to write about. So we've got rid of that and we've said, okay, well, what can we validate? What can we find out whether it's true or not, whether it exists or not, even if it's only appealing to a very niche set of people. And that, that to me opens up a huge range, around 1,000x the topic space that you can go map out. And you know, Wikipedia today has about 6 million articles in English and Google Knowledge Graph has probably around 10 billion entities. So we're, we're looking at a thousand X, thousand fold, the, the topic space that we could go after. So that's answer one of 20 <laughs> to things that could be considered deficiencies in, in the current best answer to human canonical knowledge. There are general knowledge bases like Wikipedia. There are also domain-specific knowledge bases. Stack Overflow is a domain-specific knowledge base for programming. What have you learned from Stack Overflow? So Stack Overflow, what's interesting there is the format is slightly different. And it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, a question and answer format. And that serves a very important purpose. If you look at Stack Overflow and Quora, there is a kind of question and answer format there. Something Someone's looking for something very specific and someone's giving the best quality answer. And there's a series of answers around that. And I think that has a very important place on the web. And we would love to point out to these specific answers that might be related to the abstract topic. But sometimes you don't start necessarily with a question. You just start with an area that you want to read about and start to understand questions, or start to understand the kind of questions that you want to ask. So I see it as, as something that is a, a necessary component of the full landscape of, of the information knowledge and, and a very useful one. I used to be a power user of Quora, Quora merged Wikipedia with social elements. What was innovative about Quora? Do you take any inspiration from it? Yeah, there's some learnings there as well. So Stack, Stack Exchange, the model is, is, you know, they've got subdomains per area. So they're very focused communities that don't necessarily have, that are not connected super well together. Um, I'm sure multiple people are on multiple communities there. For Quora, they haven't subdomains or split up the these niche communities, and it's it's more continuous. So you can be browsing and reading up on physics, and then you then you see a question 
about your, you know, how to handle relationships. So I think that delta there of having split communities versus a continuous community is an important one. Also, the mechanics of in Quora, it seems to be more focused on the real identity component, you know, and trying to get. And sometimes that that leads to issues that where the best answer may not necessarily get surfaced because it was the most famous person answering something. And that got voted to the top because of their fame. And Stack Exchange, more so, it seems geared to try and get the best answer for the question. And I think there's, you know, different topic areas that they that they started with. You know, Quora started with a lot of startup VC mechanics, Silicon Valley kind of questions. And that was a starting space for them. And, and Stack Exchange, you know, programming and more technical areas. And that's led to, you know, amalgamations of certain communities around those two two web properties. How would you describe Golden, which is the company you're working on? So Golden, for me, it's interesting. When, you, when you're trying to make something that's quite complex and, and quite wide-ranging, the descriptors that you, that you end up trying to put together in your head don't become sufficient. They're not sufficient to, to tell you in a nutshell really necessarily what I want it to be. But today, one element would be, could we build something that could be big, bigger than Wikipedia that could cover more topics, uh, so a thousand exotopic range, do a, have a deeper schema around each topic, so have timelines around topics, have video, all connecting media around that topic, and other aspects that aren't necessarily encapsulated by, by Wikipedia's schema. The other components are then, you know, could we make this more queryable so we could query over the data set, all integrated into one? And I, I see with Wikipedia, there are various fragmented pieces, like wiki species is separate, and there, there are pros and cons of doing this, you know, to go verticalized, Maybe you can have special features that just work for that data set. So we're trying to have an integrated single product that is very well integrated and is very easy to use and solve some of the aspects of, say, the lensing problem where you know, a PhD wants to come into the site and read the deep technical information or someone wants to come in and get, get a light, mo- light version of it. And right now, you know, you've got the simplified English Wikipedia version. And there's a lot of fragmentation over the entire product on that side. And then it's, it feels like it's missing the kind of Google knowledge graph aspects that could be plugged into it to really run the kind of knowledge graph in a sense. So I'm looking for a really comprehensive one-stop shop where you can look up a topic and find everything around that topic, including all the great core questions and, and stack exchange answers, but also you know the best YouTube videos around a topic, the best lectures, the best pet podcasts and documentaries, and really dig in and have you know full pros around it custom tables that describe useful information around the topic. So I'm looking for this for this higher level, you know, kind of unicorn, in the, not in the sense of the financial unicorn, but the this unicorn product that would be amazing to, to go and use. And then, you know, have APIs off the back of it, use AI to get rid of a lot of the boring work that humans have to do to clean up things and spelling and grammar checks and cleaning checks and, and making sure that the links don't break and link rot is, is managed and references are backed up and we don't have to necessarily rely on on uh, you know will, will the reference be backed up or not and just making sure that it's very comprehensive and that's really a long a long march to achieve that that you know we've i think we've done a reasonable amount of work in the last two years and we've been live for you know we launched formally in a few months ago so if we continue at that pace and keep improving it should go somewhat towards that vision what you're saying there about the willingness to aggregate information from other general knowledge bases. Like, you don't need to be territorial about having 
things in your personal golden format, you're willing to link to things like Wikipedia and link to things like Stack Overflow and leverage the knowledge bases that have been built before. That's a useful idea because it becomes more of an aggregator rather than these other platforms where all of the knowledge seems to be built within those platforms like the Stack Overflows or the Quora's. How do you assemble all the information for all these different topics? Sure. So th- there's a combination of human effort and AI effort and AI tools to help humans as well. So some of the techniques we have, sometimes the AI is running by itself and adding information to the site, and we're crawling the web in a targeted way, and we're crawling news, and we're trying to extract facts from, from pros out of the web and out in news. And we're also trying to bring these tools, these suggestions, when we're not completely sure what decision to be, whether we should make the decision to include the information or not, we throw this out to a hum, you know, to humans to basically sign off on the AI suggestions. So there's some human in the loop aspect to this as well, where they can sit there and click yes or no or skip on UI to actually incorporate the information. And then there's a fully, you know, then you can go fully manual if you want and write, you know, write up a page. And we built a WYSIWYG editor that's quite easy to use where the user can, can be in there and use things like keyboard commands and have AI helping them, making suggestions as they go along. And there's a lot of work to be done on that side of the product. Like we, We're not done at all on making that really good experience yet. It's pretty easy to use right now. And we want to get the leverage up so that the AI is making little suggestions to your work. It's giving feedback. When you're making a publish, it's telling you, hey, you could have written this in the third person. Hey, you're using some marketing buzzword language here and there and trying to give you recommendations on how you can fix it. And then to your point about pointing to other information, I think it's fine to, you know, reuse what's out there on the web. I mean, there are, there's kind of two parts to this. One is there is value in compiling information into one place, one UI, one consistent UI standard, because it helps you users, you know, flick between different topics and have a regular format. But there is also value to pointing to other formats. So if someone's done questions and answers really well, like Quora and Stack Exchange, then you know point out to their questions and answers. If someone's done video really well, we'll point out to the best video there. So for various parts of the data, like some, there are already existing sites that do this really well, but it's really the accumulation of everything around the topic model. So this is a topic model where you know we're trying to pull the information around the topic, and whether it be a video question academic paper, the pros we're pulling into Golden and the structured data, like the info box on the side, on the right-hand side, there's an info box that displays kind of quick facts about the topic. That stuff we're pulling in, um, that's the part that's consistent. And for other components where other websites have already mastered the UI around that da- that data type, and we, we're pointing out to it. Describe how humans and machines play a role in aggregating this information? Yeah, so AI right now, you know, there are various problems that we can solve that where it can be fully automatic. And, but there are various times where, it, you know, it can't get the best answer. So it's getting it right 70% of the time or 60% of the time or 80% of the time. And this is where it needs training data for someone else to sign off who, who's doing a better job, you know, so say a human's doing 99.9% correct to sign off on it. And you can have multiple people sign off on it. So you can have a voting system behind it where multiple people are voting on trying to help the AI label the stuff correctly 
And this is this is then going into a feedback loop where the specific algorithm can learn from a better answer and then make its own attempt again at predicting the right answer. And then once it, it can go through another cycle of learning again. So there are interesting, this is kind of, you know, piggybacking one intelligence into another intelligence. It's really taking what humans can do very naturally and trying to get it into an algorithm that's repeatable. And what we've tried to do is be very modular in solving the problems that underpin this 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 uh, mission. And not all the problems are solved yet, for sure. OpenAI have done amazing research in writing full prose now. And that that's that's a brand new arena to try and write full prose for a, for a topic. And there are lots of other components like detecting what something is. So detecting something in the first place. So, so you see a news article and it's talking about some new kind of company, you know, recursion pharmaceuticals or something. And then, so there's detecting that in the news. So there's this new thing. So that's, that's an AI pr- problem. And then you can also, a human could have done it. They could have seen it in the news and made a, made a topic page about it. Or you can have an AI say, hey, we think we've got something here, recursion pharmaceuticals. Do you want to create a topic about this? And then eventually it's going to get good enough to do it itself at a certain failure rate where it's a better use of the human's time to just correct things that are wrong rather than you know signing off on things that are predictions. And different algorithms are further ahead than others in both the academic literature, in other kind of companies that are implementing these and, and our own internal internal versions of them. So some will be fully automatic, some will be semi-automatic, and some, you know, maybe kind of kind of manual for a while. And we're going to just try and push all of them forward as, as far as we can. Do you use any tools for uh, scraping the internet? Like there's a tool called DiffBot that's pretty useful for scraping the internet, but there's also just manual scraping tools you could use. How do you scrape the internet for information? Yeah, so we've looked at the various tools out there like DiffBot, and we ended up you know, building out some of our own software here. The exact way we do it, don't really necessarily go into that much because it's kind of proprietary information. But there's a few components with this, you know, doing it in a kind of friendly way, respecting the kind of TOS of the, of the sites out there, doing it in areas that actively want their information, you know, put out there and giving them attribution when, when necessary, when they, when they need it and when they're requesting it. So I think that's one component. And it's kind of interesting that this scraping, uh, scraping kind of has a, a bad like connotation with it. But if you think about the main tool, we all use Google every single day. You know, that is like crawling the web. So it's like crawling is a crawling is one way to call it. Scraping is another way to call it. We don't do anything that's that's you know where we can't. We shouldn't be taking the information away, and it's someone else's proprietary data set. We're more interested in looking at like holistic documents out there and trying to extract facts rather than you know wholesale pulling data sets and wholesale pulling pros. It's not unique content when you do that. So. The, in, the algorithms that are interesting to us is like, okay, when looking at a web page, what are the important things? What are the facts embedded in this document or this or this URL, and extracting that that kind of stuff? Or hey, there's an event that occurred in this news story. Can we summarize the event in in a single paragraph and write our own prose around that to summarize it? So, to us, it's you know really crawling crawling the web and extracting information and trying to compile it and trying to put it in a in a format that's useful for people and machines and you, know, you can't really copyright facts so there's kind of interesting things here with fair usage and you can't really copyright facts that are just embedded inside text 
And if a lot of the kind of modern summarization and extraction is actually quite in line with our current society's views on, on IP. So I think we're quite good there. As you are crawling the web and assembling this knowledge base programmatically, you have materialized view of that information that you have crawled. You have summaries and, and topic aggregation of things that you've crawled. And then you have some degree of human in the loop for reviewing that content, for making sure it, I'm assuming, it, it making sure it looks cogent, making sure it's accurate. Can you describe how human in the loop fits into your knowledge base development? Sure. So yeah, there's a feature called suggestions on the interface, and everyone should go and have a play with it. And from there, we're making small modular recommendations, which might be, hey, we found an image for this topic. Um, should we use this image for, for, say, a topic that has no image yet, has no thumbnail? And the user can click yes, no, or skip. And it's a very simple model where you know each time we're learning off the back of that. And also the user's making progress because they can sit there making edits. Also, some people are very specialized in that they may be really good at spelling and grammar checking, or they may really enjoy selecting images for topics. So it allows people to customize what types of suggestions they're going to be answering. And it's very mobile friendly as well. So, you know, more than 50% of, of our users are using, you know, mobile web to actually get to the site. And that's a very natural use case. But editing on mobile, it's classically been almost impossible not just due to technical limitations of what you can do in these editors, but just the UI space and the constraints of finger sizes to text to complexity of what you can display and the resolution and that you can see with your eye. And when you have all these constraints, it's really hard to edit things in a kind of natural language way, you know, like a kind of Word document way or a spreadsheet inside of, inside of, on a mobile phone. So, but what you can do is make a simple yes, no, skip system where the user can take bite-sized pieces to edit and do this on the move. And it also plays into the attention economy in that there's so many things that we could be using right now, so many websites we could be on. So maybe maybe you don't have that much time anymore to do like 15 hours of editing and you have you've only got a couple of you got a couple of minutes between the next meeting and yeah, you can just jump in and make a couple of edits. So we're trying to make it fun to edit. We're trying to open up editing to a wider set of people. And also still allow for the most deep, complex writing in the web editor. And that that part is an innovation, I think, in terms of collecting the information. We've seen it in Mechanical Turk. Mechanical Turk is used to clean up information. You kind of have to build your own interface in a sense, um, but you've got access to, to people out there. So this is really channeling these recommendations that the AI is making and different modular AIs, or let's just call them algorithms, are making into allowing some kind of intelligence on the other side to to sign off on it and for the algorithm to get better over time. Does crowdsourcing still work? Because I kind of feel like there was this phase in the development of the internet where people were very, very willing to crowdsource information, were willing to contribute information because these, you know, gamified experience was kind of fun, and, like, I contributed a lot of stuff to Quora, and then over time I kind of realized, you know, I'd rather just contribute, if I'm going to write, I'm just going to make, you know, contribute to my own personal brand, my own platform, or to Twitter. But I guess, I guess even if I'm contributing to Twitter, that's basically crowdsourcing Twitter. But I guess I'm, I'm wondering, does crowdsourcing still work as well as it always has? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not fully sure if it, if it is. So there's a few things on that one, the users, 
platforms have, have, have evolved to give more back to the user for the amount of time that you're spending, you know, for Twitter is associating it with building up your own brand. So things have become more user centric in accumulation of the value that a user puts into into stuff. So there's that general trend. And also people, there are so many things that you could be doing with your time now, right? There's so many different apps out there. Users have definitely possibly been exhausted by various game mechanics that they've been overexposed to in mobile gaming and all the apps. And that that's not really fresh anymore. So, but there are some persistent, you know, incentives that people still want to get their projects uh, covered. They want to get their companies talked about. Maybe what they want to get their profile covered as well. So there's still there's still incentives there. And then the the other component here is that you know we we have a business model where uh, companies can can deeply query the information and connect to it via APIs. And this means that we've got finance to go and um, pay for also paid paid helpers that can go and collect the data, do research. So that that is you know one of the ways to accelerate the collection of the information is not necessarily to wait. And also, yeah, it's a good point that crowdsourcing is possibly quite difficult nowadays when there's so many places that a user can be. But one of the other parts of that is like bring leverage. This is about a ratio of incentives to leverage to friction. And if the friction is really low and the leverage is very high and, and the user gets something good out of it, then it's going to be a good equation for them. So I think the AI editing brings high leverage to the user and they can they cannot you know, and then lowering the friction by having WYSIWYG editor, that, that is also a way to like rebalance the equation. Also, we, we've incorporated real identity into into Golden, and that means that you know you can actually attach a social kudos to your work so someone can look at the profile and say, okay, well, this person knows a lot about these particular biotech topics. They, you can see the kind of writing they've done on the topics, and, and this writing has stood the test of time. Wikipedia has classically been anonymous, pseudo-anonymous, some, sometimes real identity, but that that is missing out on an opportunity to add to your personal brand. So by build, bringing in the real identity that is useful for people to build up a profile in, as an expert in, in a field. Let's talk more about the data engineering and how you're building the schema that is golden. I, I respect that you want to keep the proprietary bits proprietary, but can you just describe the data engineering pipeline in a little bit more detail? Yeah, I'm gonna. May not be the kind of detail that you're looking for, so we'll, we'll see what we can try. I mean, there's there's all sorts of data coming into Golden, right? So we're we're looking at specific specific URLs. So if you if you made a topic page on your website and tried to build a canonical page around that, as soon as you start putting URLs into into the info boxes and into the topic page, we're starting to hit these URLs and fairly try and get extra information that maybe your, you know, the Twitter account of, of your particular uh, website, maybe some people that may be involved in it that may be on your, on your team page. Maybe we're trying to summarize and produce a description from your about page. So there's, there's various aspects of targeted crawling there that occurs to try and get relevant information over to building up a picture of, of that topic. So there are things that can occur instantaneously, right? There are algorithms that are fast enough to go make a suggestion immediately. And some things need to go into, you know, a cron job overnight that will sit there and, and crunch through. And then there's stuff that we've already pre-compiled. Well, then there's, then there's other interesting ones. So, there's, you know, there's algorithms to sit there at nighttime to look for duplicates. There might be a duplicate that's gone into the website. And that's, that stuff can run, you know, on a daily cycle. 
then there's things to to look for inference. You know that you may you may find one you may have pulled in one fact and you pulled in another fact that allows you to get to something else and infer something else and make a suggestion. So there's kind of like a little chain reaction that occurs with every time we get any URLs associated with these with these topics, we get a bit more visibility on the world. And instead of crawling the every single website that exists, say in the classic sense of a, a normal search engine, we're trying to build out more organically from from these URLs and pull them in. And then you know they they have to have particular queues. There's a queue you know queue system for it. And then there's 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 various different technologies around that to to make sure that this stuff can be handled well. And we've actually got thousands of thousands of suggestions waiting to go for that need human sign off. But there's also the automatic AI as well, which is making its making its changes. And then we've also got import projects. So we're actually specifically trying to, you know, so we're we're specifically trying to fill out various data areas and we built a whole templating system, for example, around an entity. So if you set an entity to be a company, it comes with a bunch of info box properties like location, CEO, founder date, ink name, tagline, business model. And so we've got a, and each one of those has a type. And we we try to be careful about the types and the schema around each one of these entities. And we're extending that all the time. So, you know, eventually we'll build some algorithms to also do schema suggestions to say, hey, you're missing this. We've detected this property of this entity and we want to make a schema change. And that, that's a pretty high level change. So for now that that's being architected, we're architecting that carefully. And we looked we looked at the Wikipedia schemas, we looked at schema.org and various other schemas that are being set there. So there's, there's a schema design, there's a types of things, you know, even when you're setting a date, you know, should should it be the exact day? Should it be a fuzzy date? Should it just be a year? And should it have a time range? Um, like if a, if a CEO was a CEO of a company, it needs a time range. So there's very subtle ways to store all this information and then making it communicate to each other is, is you know, well, or making it consistent, holistic is an interesting like problem of, of kind of data architecture. So I hope that answers a little bit about it. I'm not, I'm not necessarily giving, giving you some exact like commercial detail. <laughs> no, um, no, no yeah. problem. Can you give me some some products that you use, perhaps like your software architecture, like cloud providers and streaming frameworks and machine learning systems, any kind of lower level infrastructure that you're using? So to be very vague, <laughs> we're using AWS right now, and we're using a bunch of the AWS products, and that that's mainly for infrastructure. So you know, I've always been wary about whether giving out full details that has been that where there's much value for for us like as a company to do that but we've been experimenting with different aws products there that's probably mostly because the team is fairly used to the aws products and it makes sense to to try and use different components there but yeah we haven't given out details on necessarily any of the specific tooling that we're using to make this happen it is a competitive market right there are other companies that want to also own own the space but yeah, that's my vague answer for you. <laughs> no problem. Fair enough. How do you evaluate build versus buy? Because in these days, you know, there's so many good cloud tools that you could buy off the shelf and build something really, really cool with. But if you're building something data intensive, like a, a knowledge base, I can imagine there will be some applications that you might need to build specifically. So I don't know if you can talk uh, talk about that philosophically, perhaps. Yeah. We recently had one of those decisions, and it sounds like a very big company type thing, right? Like build versus buy, but really, actually, startups face it all the time. They just don't face the decision probably very correctly, 
and they, and either they go and buy it buy what they should have built or they or they build what they should have bought so we had a very specific case of this the other day and even though it was a very small cost in dollar terms it was only like a 5k piece of software one off we really had like a reasonable discussion about whether we would do it or not it kind of affected the philosophy of the company and there's all these like generic little things that people say of like is it a core competency like no you shouldn't write you know build your payroll software let's use gusto no we shouldn't use our we shouldn't build a cap table management software let's use carter hey we shouldn't build our you know discord or google hangouts even though we've had a couple of technical issues with them but when it comes to some of the nlp stuff there are interesting packages out there when it comes to some of the startups i mean there, there are various kind of frameworks there where if you're a startup and you partner with a startup that's usually pretty shaky ground both of you have high velocity you may change direction any times so if you're buying something off a startup which is going to be moving around a lot and you're a startup then maybe you should have not necessarily bought that so one of the conditions is like is what you're buying going to like radically change or give up or like shut down are you going to waste a bunch of time the other part is that how much you need to customize it so if it's part of your core offering of the core innovation defining the boundary of the core competency is quite difficult and defining what your core competency is when you're in a product market fit searching mode is also difficult as well so i think it's okay to buy things you know, say you're building, you're going to do and do some crawling. It makes sense to go test out diff what. And I think, I think part of this, you go go test it out, and say, okay, well, do I need to customize way beyond this? Okay, I'm going to have to build it in house. And if not, you know, can I can I get away with doing prototype code for this to try and get away with it? And maybe we'll switch over and buy it later. You may not be able to buy some software until you get your business model up and running. It may be too expensive, or it may be something that you're going to buy now but build later, or build now and then buy later. So. It's really about looking at the build-by decision as well as like a roadmap, long-term roadmap decision because it, it could be build-by-build build or you know build prototype code, then we're going to buy it, then actually we're going to end up building it again. Or it's, so, so it's, it's not necessarily a, a binary switch as well. It's about you know, what, what is the philosophy of the company? What areas do you want to own? What areas do you want to get really good at? Do you want to be really good at the AI component? Do you really want to be good at the UI component? And you can't be good at necessarily everything. Then there's a question of how many plates do you want to spin on your technical stack if you're going to go and build all the pieces yourself. So I think there's an art form to that. And I don't think there's any easy rules to say, you know, oh, just focus on your core competencies. And it's like, well, what are my core competencies? You know, so I would love to like hear more thinking on this. And if anyone can, you know, when this goes out on Twitter, people can put it in the, in the discussion, like links to defining what your core competency are. I think that's the hard boundary here to define. All right. What's the business model for Golden? Sure. So currently, we are offering a query tool for companies and organizations. And that's on a seated SaaS model where currently $99 per month. So all the topic pages are open and free. And that's a really important thing. That's, that's the main reason that I'm working on this is to get an open website with all the topics on there. But one of our pitches is that, you know, this is a company, you know, and we believe a company can make a better product and a company needs to have a business model. And the more money we make, the more we can invest in the software. So the actual query tool is is a very powerful query tool where you can query any kind of entity inside Golden, set up various filters, fine grain alerts. There's also an API as well. So you can go into enterprise mode and you can pull the data at which might be enriching your Salesforce or Affinity. There's integrations as well coming where you can actually say, okay, well, I want to directly integrate that into my into my CRM. Or you might be an insurance company and want to pull data on people 
management team or that you're about to back the company of, or insure the company of, or the company itself, or uh, you need some location information about where this particular company is based so and to feed your insurance model. So we're seeing the use case of, I mean, the value is is the data and, and how to access it in a, for corporates and for organizations via like deep querying, advanced querying, APIs, integrations. So that's perhaps product level one. And I, I think there probably will be other paid products coming up from Golden because we think that it's going to be very valuable to also apply these algorithms that we've developed to private knowledge. And that that's probably going to be the second phase for us where we start using using the algorithms we develop to help shape your internal private knowledge. And then there's this connection between public and private knowledge. So if you've got, collected all the private knowledge in your organization, organized it really well, and it's self-healing, and you also want to keep it in sync with what's happening in the public as well to make sure you're, you're on point and your private data is, is also correct. And hopefully, then there's this next fourth phase where and we saw this kind of with GitHub where, you know, you had open source repos, you had closed repos, and people forked open repos into closed, and they also took private repos open source. So I'm hoping as well that over time, in mapping also the private knowledge of companies, we will come back full circle to the vision and provide a channel and affordances and, and incentives for companies to open up their information and, you know, not just open up code, but open up their knowledge. And that happens through academic papers. It happens through open source code. Um, it happens through blog posts. But I'd love to see it happen, canonical information as well, get opened up to the public. And so I think having them next to each other, you know, there's some people that say, oh, this is really bad. There's a business model attached to it. Your incentives are all going to be wrong. But actually, the incentives to be correct on the data level are very, very strong because, you know, a company will not buy the information if it's wrong. And if a company trades on the information that's wrong, then we that's not good for Golden if we get it wrong. So we've got to get the information right. So I would argue we have even more of an incentive to get the information correct on the public side. And by putting the two things next to each other, we are opening up a door for companies in the future to start open sourcing their information and making the open side richer than, than we could have ever possibly imagined previously. When I think about a problem with so much data that you could be aggregating, so much scraping you could be doing, cost controls seem relevant to me. Do you have any strategies around how you control costs for data engineering and data aggregation? Yeah, this is a good one. So we have some ideas here. So there are data points out there that are clearly economically viable to collect. So if you collected the post-money valuation of a company, that would be useful information for some other company to pay you for that data point. And as you add more of the data points to your network of data, then your entire network becomes stronger because you've got relative data, like the post-money valuation relative to something else, some other attribute. So the more data you collect together, the more the per unit value goes up of these data points. And then there are topic areas where they're uneconomic currently to go to go collect information. At least companies necessarily wouldn't care about them, but your users care about them. So the users, I just saw a particular type of black hole, and I was on Wikipedia reading about the free body math- mathematical problem. And I saw some section in there, and I saw a link in there, and I clicked on it, and there was no page on this particular type of black hole. So I start, started writing a version 
on Golden about this black hole. I'm going to try and find someone over the weekend to fill it out who knows a lot more about it than me. So that information, that esoteric information, may not be very commercially viable, but it's still really interesting to the cons- uh, to the community. And there's indirect effects on the economics of collecting that information. So I argue we should go and get that information. We should cover all of physics, all of math, all of philosophy. Uh, maybe Wikipedia will be the best place for historical information, and we'll point to that. And then there is then there's information kind of outside of this band, like. There is a pen sitting on my desk right now in front of this in front of the screen for this podcast, and it, it's not that interesting to go and make a page about that pen. It doesn't really have any commercial value. It doesn't really have any academic value to anyone. No one cares about it, and it becomes difficult to validate as well when no one cares about the information. So there is definitely a boundary where there's it. It, it probably will never be valuable information for me to get get a page on on that on that and keep it. And there's a cost associated, right, to keeping it valid. And store the storage cost is going to zero. The cost of keeping it valid is also going to zero, but it's not zero. Both of them not zero. So there is a cost to pages, but we really, really want to go quite far on this and and try and cover everything where people are interested in it. And I think there are other types of graphs out there. There are people, people building location graphs where the economics makes sense to be focused around the location graph. And there are people building information on statistical data sets and the economics, when you package it together, the economics get better so the economics can work for them. So we do have, we set like a rough, it's, it's, a, it's a soft boundary of, you know, the 10 billion entities and we'll hopefully the economics get better over time because the cost goes down, the validation cost goes down, the number of customers you have go up, the number of inferences you can make from the data and the number of other data points go up. So the economics get better and the boundary starts moving outwards and it doesn't move outwards at a greater and greater speed. Well, it doesn't like necessarily go to infinity, right? Otherwise you'd be simulating the universe inside, <laughs> inside the, inside the universe by mapping every single atom and, and subatomic particle and labeling, you know, every, everything that possibly exists. So that's not quite what we're trying to do. We're trying to get the topics that you really expect and very niche you know, scientific topics. And a lot of these startups are done in cycles, right? There is a cycle, there is a kind of VC cycle, there's an IPO cycle, there's a business business cycle, a general business cycle, you know, seven to 10 years. There are founders' lives cycles as well. And if you look at a lot of the projects out there, they tend to fit in these market cycles. So you really have to think about, I mean, this Joshua Schachter, who founded Delicious, told me this, that, you know, really, I'm not probably correctly paraphrasing, but he talked about, you really got to think about this company. Your company is like a five to 10 year kind of experience, at least like in its product form, because all the dynamics are going to completely be thrown out the window in five to seven years anyway. So, you know, you've got to make a, a push and, and then then from there you can you can start to do new things. So that, that's how I, I, I see this as like, what is the right model for the next five to 10 years? And then when you're at the 10 year point, I think it becomes really hard to predict what really are the products that, that come off the back of that or what could displace you in the future, et cetera. To draw to a close, I was looking at some of the writing that you've done and the past inventions that you've made. I think you're a capable hardware engineer. Why are you working in software? That's a funny one, yeah. So I really enjoy hardware, actually. So, you know, I like hacking on hardware. I guess the scale. So if I was going to do a hardware project, it would have to be something pretty hardcore. And something, you know, I've invested in Boom. They're building a supersonic jet invested in Astronus and Relatively Space who are doing 3D printed rockets and software-defined radios. 
well, that's a good little answer there. Um, so Stranus, you know, it's a software-defined radio, and it cuts down the weight of the satellite from a hardware hardware heavy satellite to a very light satellite that's software powered so i think the scale the other part i love tinkering with is actually ui and ux and that can have a hardware component or it can be it can be purely in the browser so i actually really enjoy personally working on trying to make snappy products trying to improve the ui removing steps from things improving affordances and constraints so design abstract design is interesting to me no matter what the substrate is and that means that actually generally means that I'd like improving software. The scale is is very interesting of how many people you can reach. So you know we could build something that could be reached. You know maybe get to a billion people. That that's very interesting to me. The lack of capex required to go build it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love I love hardware, but most of the things I want to build require require five hundred million dollars worth of capital to build on the hardware side. So I think scale, and then on a day to day basis, I really enjoy improving the ui remove you know removing ambiguities in the ui and that that's actually my wheelhouse just to play in interfaces and improve products so software is for now something that is my focus and also algorithms you know i'm, I'm interested in the specific algorithms that are occurring in ai if you're to bind yourself to a to a wave that's coming through and take a good decision to not operate in a market that is shrinking or boring or, or not going anywhere so you know where would you want to be you want to be in a market where things are rapidly changing where no one know, knows the new rules and there's a, a giant wave coming coming through which is which is this this wave of algorithms becoming easier to implement and doing things that people thought were not possible 20 years ago and then there's a mission you know sometimes you're you got a mission and you, you want to get the mission done and it doesn't really matter what the substrate is that you're going to work with so you know, some people I know that are not biologists, but they want to go and solve a particular type of Alzheimer problem and they have to reskill. And I've seen aerodynamicists get into transfection of cells and get into biology. So I think it's, and maybe you bring something different to the table when you go and attack the problem with a, with a different kind of background and you, and you see it in a different way. If you had to start a company in the physical world, like a manufacturing company or an agriculture company or an energy company, do you have any ideas for what company you would start? Yeah, so part of the, while working on Golden, I actually looked at different companies to go build. One of them was, hey, what about building a supersonic jet company? So I came across, I started researching that, and I came across the Boom team, and I thought, wow, these these guys are two years ahead, and they've compiled a great team, and they're really, really going to do this. It looks like they are on their way. One of the other ones I looked at was trying to, take what Boston Dynamics did and instead of having million dollar machines that were one off that were stuck in the office their office like build very cheap versions with replaceable parts uh, that maybe you could 3D print not fully open source you know like enough to make it commercial and have get the price point down to 10k where you could have rapid iteration of these robots and build like a Tesla of robotics so that one's still interesting to me I haven't seen anyone do it there's been like robots in factories like Baxter and stuff, and there's been toy robots, but it's not, I've never seen any, you know, Boston Dynamics done at 10K price point and take all the, all the hardware stuff into software if you can. Maybe we'll see that happen after the last mile delivery services, you know, delivering things on, on wheels, on, on these kind of little mini drones. Aerospace is very interesting still. Engines are interesting to me. Rapid construction is interested. I, I think the carbon sequestering is also a great engineering problem. Like, you know, we've got a massive problem with the environment and ca carbon dioxide and methane. 
So looking at solutions for that, which might end up biological solutions or cleaning air, you know, electronics has always fascinated me as well. So, so I'm always, always looking out for kind of interesting ideas there, but for now I'm focused on, on golden fully and hardware wise, like maybe I'll do a hardware company in the future. Who knows? And, you know, part of golden as well is like keeping it interesting, like looking at, looking at new things all the time. And the variety is, it's very high when you get to see all these new pages being made and new, new companies going into that. There is a company in the low-cost robotics space that we had on the show recently, Slate Robotics, in, in case you're interested in checking that out. Check that out, yeah. Last question. Tell me an unusual belief that you recently developed about technology. That's a hard question. An unusual belief. One of them may be that I genuinely think that most things are possible. Not like most configurations of matter in the universe are possible. That's the reverse. But most technological problems, if you really want to solve them, they are doable. And you just have to fully dedicate yourself to solving them and be absolutely relentless in solving them. So all these things of, oh, that's not possible. No one's done that before. No one's done that before. That to me just doesn't matter. It's like, I think that's probably unusual in that most people would take, look at some technical problem and say, this is, not, this is too difficult. Like you can't, you can't do that. And for me, you know, nature is, can be very nonlinear and there are all these solutions around the corner. So my unusual take is that pretty much anything that you challenged, you know, you challenge us to do, we, we can do it, but you can't do them all at once. So you can maybe only do one really hard problem if you went all in on it. And I'm talking about engineering problems, not talking about say a math problem or a specific physics problem that may be actually not possible for a team to say, yeah, we could do that. We could solve the Riemann hypothesis, you know, in the next five years. But maybe you could. Maybe you could say, hey, we're going to set up a massive website to brute force work out how to solve the problem and, and get everybody excited and get loads of teenagers excited and loads of people working on the problem and set up incentives and set up capturing all the research and linking it all together and like everyone attacking the problem. Maybe it's possible to do it in five years if you said, let's do the Riemann hypothesis in five years. So anything is possible. Okay, Jude Gomilla, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Yes, thank you for the questions. It was really fun. Wow.